Open your Bibles to Psalm 34. We want to look at a verse that I made passing reference to last Sunday. There's a most appropriate verse in looking at the lives of Naomi and Ruth, which we shall study further this morning. Psalm 34. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Now, we just read about another woman a few moments ago, the woman named Hannah. She had her own afflictions, did she not? First of all, the Lord had closed up her womb. Yes, it's the Lord that closes and opens the womb. But not only that, the Lord had given her quite an adversary in her own home. Remember, the Lord arranged those circumstances also. And so many are the afflictions of the righteous as poor Hannah was provoked by the frequent adversarial role of Peninnah. But the Lord delivers out of them all. Let us go to the Lord in prayer, remembering that promise. Heavenly Father, as we again this day look at the book of Ruth and the subject of godly and virtuous women, grant that the women in this congregation, young and old, might be encouraged and motivated to apply themselves more diligently than ever to be women after thy own heart. Heavenly Father, Ruth is an example given to us in Scripture of a virtuous woman. Grant that we shall have a congregation filled with virtuous women, homes with virtuous women in them, children with virtuous mothers, husbands with virtuous wives, and that these virtuous women might have a preserving effect upon our society as they leave their influence. O Lord, you know the prayer of my heart that this might be the case with this congregation. And Heavenly Father, while there is nothing new or startling to reveal from the book of Ruth that hopefully we are not already aware of, grant that it shall be proper, appropriate, and profitable time of remembrance, that these things shall be remembered and that they shall be applied diligently and carefully. We read that many are the afflictions of the righteous. We believe that, Lord, for many afflictions we have experienced. And we look at the case of your saints, Old Testament and New, and indeed they experienced many. But, O Lord, we look with hope to the promise that you'll deliver us out of them all. We thank Thee for the example of Ruth and the example of Hannah, which we have just read, that does teach us that most plainly. Have mercy upon us now, and grant Thy servant a sound mind, power in the Holy Ghost, and Thy people open ears and willing hearts to do that which they see and hear. Through Jesus Christ the Lord, amen. Amen. Turn now back to the book of Ruth, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth where we might take up again where we left off last Lord's Day after a brief review. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, and here was a family that the Lord certainly afflicted for a time, but then He had mercy upon them and delivered them out of them all and raised them up and set them among princes in the city of Bethlehem. Poor Ruth the Moabite, set among princes, indeed as you shall see. 
as we finish this book, hopefully, today. Let me remind you briefly of what we covered last Sunday. Ruth chapter 1 is what I call the introduction of Ruth. It occurs down through verse 5, where we just have some, a basic introduction given to us of the main personalities so far in the book. A man named Elimelech, according to verse 2, had a wife, Naomi, and two sons, Malin and Chalion. And these four went into Moab to find food because there was a famine in the land of Israel. While they were there, Elimelech died, which left Naomi with two sons, alone in a foreign and strange land. These two sons, according to verse 4, married two women named Orpah and Ruth. However, the two sons die also, and there is a time to die, and we know that no one dies before the Lord's time, although they may die before their time. They died at the hand of the Lord, which left Naomi now in a foreign and strange land with two daughters-in-law. She now has two, Orpah and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, without sons, without husband, alone in a strange land with strange gods and customs. But when she hears in verse 6 that there's food again in Israel, that the famine's over, she doesn't waste a moment. She is seeking first the kingdom of God. And as soon as it is possible for her to return, she is on her way back, according to this sixth verse. And she brings her two daughter-in-laws with her. And as they approach the land of Israel at some point, Naomi realizes, I'm expecting quite a bit of these two women to bring them to a strange nation, strange customs, strange gods, no home, no future, I'm a widow. I'm not going to have more sons for them. Maybe I ought to convince them to go back. And last Sunday, she used dissuasion, as we studied it, to see if she could not convince Orpah and Ruth to go back to the land of Moab. Do you remember the examples I gave you in Scripture of using dissuasion to carefully draw alternatives for people? You just don't want to say, do you want to go with me, Ruth and Orpah, into Israel? They would have said yes and continued on their way. But Naomi carefully describes the hardships they were going to have and weeds out the insincere follower from the true follower. And you'll find me doing that many times evangelistically with those we come in contact with. Now with that dissuasion, we see in verse 10 that both daughters, Ruth and Orpah, said to Naomi, Surely... We will return with thee unto thy people. Their first response is, yes, indeed, we want to go back with you. They had such a relationship with Naomi, they wanted to go back to Israel. That was in verse 10. But as Naomi continues to say, as you can see in verse 11, turn again, my daughters. Wait a minute, you don't want to do this. Turn back and go back to Moab. And she explains why they ought to do so. That in verse 14 we read, they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. That is, Orpah kissed her goodbye and went back to Moab. The same woman that 30 seconds earlier had said, Surely we will go with thee, is now going back to the land of Moab. When you're dealing with people, you don't want to make it easy for them to follow the truth. You want to make it difficult, as the Lord Jesus Christ did. 
because you'll want to weed out the insincere followers. We don't want Orpahs. There are 260 churches in this city filled with Orpahs. And they're there because it's been made easy for them to be there. We don't want Orpahs. We want Ruth, not Orpahs. Well, Naomi continues to try to dissuade or discourage Ruth from following her. And here is what a true follower will do when you try to discourage them. Ruth says it in verse 16, Entreat me not to leave thee. She, be, she begs Naomi, Don't do that to me. I can't take it. I don't want to hear it. Don't try to beg me to leave you because I'm not going to. Wherever you go, I'm going. Wherever you end up lodging, whether it be in a tent, a stable, or a palace, I'll lodge there with you. Your people that I have, never, I have not met yet will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die there. In fact, I'll be buried wherever you die. She'll not even be brought back to the land of Moab to be buried. And there is the testimony of a true follower, willing to forsake all. And this Ruth is now presented to us as an example of a virtuous woman. And this morning we shall see where that statement is made in the Word of God, the only woman specifically described as a virtuous woman in the Word of God. Remember the writer of Proverbs 31 said, Who can find a virtuous woman? You want to be special? Women? Girls? Do you want to be special? Then try to be a virtuous woman. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. That is something you can aim for to make you special before God and men. God considers it special because that's his inspired word, and men certainly consider it special, as Boaz will tell us in this third chapter. What a goal to be a virtuous woman. Does it mean you'll be popular? No. Does it mean you may be the best dressed? Not necessarily if you're talking about trendy fads of our society. Does it mean you'll be the most vocal? No, you may have to shut your mouth on most occasions to be a virtuous woman. But do you want to be special? Then aim for Ruth. You know, one of her great characteristics is shown to us right here by her willingness to forsake all. Women find it difficult to forsake emotional attachments that they develop. Whether it be an evergreen tree that they want to have in their home during that season of the year around the winter solstice, whether it be sons and daughters, mother and father, yea, even a husband at times, or friends, or the security of a home, or the security of their husband's job, women find it difficult to forsake all. And if you know anything about human experience, you'll see that. Women build up emotional attachments to the things that provide them security and comfort and emotional pleasure. But this woman forsook it all. And what did Jesus Christ say? If you don't hate father, mother, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter, friend, if you don't hate lands, houses, if you're not willing to lose all things for my sake, what kind of a disciple are you of mine? You're not a disciple. And see, that's, that's the dissuasion Jesus Christ used to weed out men and women. If you're not willing to forsake all, and he may not ask you to forsake all, he'll just probably ask you to forsake 
what is dearest. You're not worthy of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I love Ruth. I love Ruth. She flushed everything. Just like the Apostle Paul, who said he counted all things but dung for the cause of Christ. That's just what Ruth is doing right here. Counting it all dung. Family, friends, home, security, nation, whatever. Naomi and her God and the people of Israel, the congregation of the Lord, is what she was going to place her, pre, her priority upon. Remember in Psalm 144 last Sunday, we read about our daughters being as polished cornerstones in a palace? That's what we want to develop. That's what we want. Fathers, forget your sons for a while. Look at the importance of your daughters. Let us raise some virtuous daughters. Yes, sons are nice in some respects, but my friends, the Bible takes pains to mention the names of Job's daughters and ignores his seven sons. I like that. Seven sons ignored, three daughters, their names are given. Now, you don't know much about the daughters, but God, the Holy Spirit, wanted you to know that they were important enough to have their names in this book. And I'll bet they were virtuous women. I'd lay good money on that. I mean, when you've got a father like Job, and the Lord blessed him, and there's, did you read any rebuke in the book of Job for Job's poor job in child training? No, not at all. Job was a perfect man, God said, before him. We need to concentrate on our daughters. What an influence we can have if we have some godly mothers in a generation where women have gone to seed. Remember last Sunday we read Isaiah chapter 3 and we described the daughters of Zion and the daughters of America on how wicked they are primarily in their appearance and forward conduct. Now Ruth is the exact opposite of Isaiah 3, if you haven't picked that up yet. Ruth is the exact opposite of that haughty look and haughty action and haughty walking of the women described in that third chapter of Isaiah. This is the book we need to go to to see a virtuous woman. In this book, we are to learn God's providence, a godly woman's virtues, and the glory of Jesus Christ from a rotten heritage. That's the three things. Those are the three things we want to see. Now, in chapter, we read in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 1 that Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem. Now, Naomi went out full, she had a husband a good husband, a wealthy man, a property owner. And she had two sons. She went out that way and she came back. No husband, nothing, no money, no sons, and one poor Moabitess for a daughter-in-law, not even an Israelite. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, we have introduced to us the next character in this book, that we need to pay attention to, and that's the man Boaz. The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 1, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Something I didn't mention last Sunday is this. Boaz is the son, or was the son, of Salmon and Rahab. Did you know that Boaz's mother was Rahab? Now, if you'll think about that for a minute, does that help at all when this poor Moabitess 
begs for his hand, well, we're going to, begs for his hand in marriage, basically. Remembering, my mother was of the city of Jericho. She was one of those of the nations that God told us to destroy also. And God blessed her. She was a godly woman in the Bible. I mean, when you make it to Hebrews chapter 11, you are a godly woman. And Rahab made it to Hebrews chapter 11. And not only did she make it to Hebrews chapter 11, friends, she made it to James chapter 2 as an example of faith. And she made it to Matthew chapter 1 as a mother of Jesus Christ. For starters. But Boaz is the son of Salmon and Rahab, the harlot, from Jericho. You know, that's in the book of Judges. Remember, Joshua was the one that took the city of Jericho, and Rahab joined Israel in his day. Then the book of Judges followed, and that was Rahab's son, Boaz, who's now an older man, as we shall see today. Now, chapter 2, we studied last Sunday evening, and we saw the character of Ruth. We saw her piety. That is, her respect for her parents. And we saw that in verse 2, it began in verse 2, when she went out to glean fields for her mother Naomi and didn't even ask her to come, she just went and did it herself. Also in verse 2, we saw her initiative. She said, let me go. She came up with the idea, instead of cruising the town or going to the mall, she went out to work to earn food for the two of them. And also in verse 2, we see the patience of Ruth. She takes a boring job. She isn't looking for something better. She isn't sitting around saying, Oh, Lord, I just can't take that job. It doesn't pay well enough. Bring me something better. As we're often prone to do, she gets out and gets to work, and the Lord will always bless diligence and initiative. Amen. I don't care if, you do have, if it is a cut in pay or a cut in status for you to go out and get a job that's paying minimum wage or not much better. You get out there and work hard at that, and on the authority of the Word of God, regardless of what you think, or regardless of what Al Lowry might tell you, the Lord will bless diligence. Don't sit around and say, well, I can't work for less than $6 an hour, and sit at home and collect fat on your flanks. Why don't you get out and take that job at 335 or whatever it is, and work as hard as you can, and continue to trust the Lord for a better job. He'll reward the diligence far more than he will the prayer offered from your lazy boy chair. And Ruth, look at this woman. In one verse, she leaves Naomi at home. You don't have to do it, mother. I'll go do it. Do what, daughter? I'll go glean. I'll go like a beggar and follow the John Deere around the field picking up whatever it drops, which is God's welfare system that we discussed last Sunday evening. And she hung in there with it. What a boring job. How would you like to be looking for a kernel at a time in a field? Just what they dropped and doing it by hand. No equipment. You're just picking up the little bit they dropped. What a boring job. But she's there doing the best she can. Did the Lord reward her diligence? Boy, her mother was shocked when she came home with the amount she had gleaned that day. In verse 3, we have that interesting little word that we don't use in the 20th century, H-A-P. Now, in verse 1, the Holy Spirit has given us a clue as to something that could happen. Boaz is mentioned. He's a wealthy man. You want to see the Hollywood plot unfold here? It's better than a Hollywood plot. 
The Holy Spirit gives us a clue. You know, we pan in on this rich man, and all we see is his Fleetwood brougham disappearing into his garage door and all his property. And then we go back to Ruth, the poor little servant girl. She's out gleaning a field. And she just, according to verse 3, she just happens. You know where we get that word happen from the word hap. It says in verse 3, And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. In one verse, we're told about the rich man in town. The next verse, we're told about this poor little servant girl who's going to go glean diligently. In verse 3, poor little thing just happened to hit the rich man's property. And remember, I don't like leaving this subject because it gives glory to my God. Because there are no happen chance events with Him. She happed from a natural standpoint. From God's standpoint, I know what He had on His face. If I may speak of the face of God, He had a smile from ear to ear. Does my God laugh? Need I quote it to you? Does God take pleasure in rewarding His servants? Absolutely. He was sitting there smiling as she happened on the field of Boaz. You talk about a twinkle in my eye when I read the book of Ruth. God had one in His who arranged the whole thing, the God of heaven. I love that God. He's merciful. He's kind. He has a sense of humor. The way He wrote it is interesting as we read this second chapter. Look at Proverbs 16, 9 again. I want you to remember this verse. In fact, I can read it to you, but if you can turn there, it's good to see it. Did Ruth, in verse 2, devise something in her heart? What did she devise in her heart? We need food. I will go to work to earn us some food. She devised something in her heart. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart deviseth his way. She devised her way. God has given us intelligence. He expects us to devise our way the best we can. She devised her way the best she could. She would go glean. But I love, I love the rest of that verse. But the Lord directeth his steps. Isn't that precious? Here's this woman. She had it in her heart. I need to go glean. I need to make some food for my family. She went out and walked down the street. Well, I might as well try this one. Which one did she try? Where did her steps end? On the field of Boaz. The Lord directeth the steps. What is a godly person to say about their business, their job, their future, according to James chapter 4? If the Lord will, we will go into such and such a city and do this or that. We devise our way. So many times people say to me, but I just don't know what the will of the Lord is. I'll tell you what the will of the Lord is. What your heart devises. You devise in your heart the best you can based on the principles of Scripture and just say, if the Lord will, this is what I'm doing. You devise because I trust in a God that can direct your feet. I mean, when you, when you, devise, when you look at the newspaper and you devise that in your heart you need to make a career change, that's fine. If, as long as you're being prudent, your family's taken care of in case you're unemployed for a couple of weeks, As long as you've looked at all the circumstances and you've devised it in your heart, make the career change. Because I trust in the Lord who directs steps. And I know that he says this, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. 
And if you're looking for some better thing, do you know what? I happen to believe there's a God who wants you to have it. And if you'll devise properly and then trust Him providentially, that is understanding what the will of the Lord is right there. Right. What do you think He gave you a mind for? To devise. But the Lord directs the steps. I love that. Back to, Ro- to Ruth chapter 2. There are no coincidences with the God I worship. Don't we have some haps to be thankful for? We mentioned them last Sunday. Our jobs, our wives, our children, our, the country we live in. 250 million out of a 4 billion population. I like the odds. It was a hap. Out of the 250 million, how many ever hear of the truth? A half a million? A hundred thousand? A thousand? I like the odds. Another half. As far as I'm concerned, friends, I've been happed more than anyone in this universe. I've had more blessings than all of you, from my perspective, but I hope that all of you feel the same way. From my perspective, I've had more... What in the world would I want more than I've got today? You say, well, your mortgage paid off. Ah, who cares? The Lord's going to provide for that. That doesn't bother me a bit. I don't know of anything that I would want more than I've got. More children? I've got plenty. I didn't say all. I said I've got plenty. There's relative degrees of plenty. Ruth chapter 2, I'm thankful for the haps that I've experienced, and I praise God for them. I feel like He has providentially taken care of me more than any being in this universe, and I give Him all the credit, because if any being in this universe deserved the heat of hell, it was your pastor. But as we go through this second chapter, we also saw her humility, because the servant said in verse 7 that she came and asked if she could glean. This is important, friends. A virtuous woman never assumes rights. Let me give you women an example. Oftentimes, when I'm talking to you women, and I will mention something about being a submissive wife, usually, the first response I get back from a woman is, but my husband doesn't do this or that. That is not a virtuous woman. A virtuous woman does not care what her husband does or does not do. She cares about what is it my obligation to do. <clears throat> That's like asking one of, my, one of the men, why aren't you a better worker at your place of employment? Because my boss doesn't treat me right. That is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether your boss treats you right or not. From your perspective... Now, from my perspective, from God's perspective, from the husband's perspective, yes, he's under obligation to the Word of God to treat his wife a certain way. But it is not the wife's duty to either bring that to his remembrance or, necessarily, or to use it as an excuse for her own disobedience. Look at Ruth. Now, Ruth had the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. She could have gone up to the reaper, pulled out her Old Testament, thumbed to it, and said, see, I have, I have, I'm going to glean in your field today. I've got the right to do it. 
She doesn't do that. That's not the way a virtuous woman behaves. The virtuous woman doesn't enjoy assuming rights. The virtuous woman likes allowing privileges. And she comes and asks for the privilege to glean in the field instead of demanding her right. That is humility. And women, don't blame your husbands for your lack of perfection in your marriage. You are responsible to God for the way you behave. Your husband's responsible to God for the way he behaves. He's not responsible to you. And God has so arranged your imperfect husband just to see if you're a virtuous woman. Did you know if your husband was perfect, it would be impossible for you to be a virtuous woman? Can I prove that with the Bible? If your husband was perfect, you could not be a virtuous woman. It'd be, how would you show virtue? <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2 and 3 describes servants. Servants under a master. What's the only time a servant can pr- perform in a way that's acceptable and pleasing to God in the ultimate degree? When the master is forward and mistreats him and punishes him for well-doing. When you're punished for well-doing and you respond the proper way, that is virtue. When you are a citizen and your king taxes you for abortions and for international offense like the United States is guilty of and we go ahead and pay our taxes, that is submitting to an evil and forward government. But that's the way we show virtue. When a wife submits to a husband who may not be the most patient, in fact, he may be rather impatient, and sarcastic with her from time to time. From her standpoint, that is where she shows virtue. I am not excusing impatience on the part of husbands. They are responsible to God for their behavior, but they're not responsible to their wives. And the wives aren't responsible to behave only if the husband's perfect. The time a woman can show virtue is to sweetly smile and take the brute's impatience and sarcasm. That's why God left us in an imperfect world. Because we're going to suffer for well-doing. Can we do it well? That behavior is acceptable to God. Your pastor's not perfect. I'm going to do things that offend you. I'm going to say things that you thought will think that you could have said better. How well can you take that is a true sign of virtue. Ruth shows her diligence in verse 7 by continuing from morning even until the time that Boaz came to check on the crew, and it appears that it was lunchtime, she hadn't taken a break until she saw Boaz coming near the field. And then it says that she tarried a short... She tarried in the house, in verse 7. That is, so she'd be in close proximity to this man who was in charge. Very subtle, very subtle way of being around at the right time. We saw her wisdom in doing that. We saw her submission by falling down on her face before Boaz. Instead of reminding him of the Deuteronomy law or the the Levitical law, she fell down on her face before Boaz. In verse 10, she fell on her face, bowed herself to the ground and said, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? A virtuous woman will allow and grant and express the fact that the treatment of her husband toward her is not a right, but grace. And friends, there is all the difference in the world between right and grace. 
Now, all I have to do is remind you about welfare recipients, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. The welfare recipient who thinks it's a right and wants to march on Washington to get an increase in their benefits and demands their rights, their right to work, their right to education, you know what you want to do to that kind of a person. You know what I want to do to that kind of a person. But the person who considers it gracious to receive any charity and is thankful for the favor, don't we like? What would you do for that person? I mean, you'd, you'd give them an increase just, for, just to give them the increase, wouldn't you? When they behave that way. That's the, a wife, a virtuous woman, ought to behave the same way. Instead of always worrying about what her husband ought to be doing, and I know women love Ephesians chapter 5, they love to read, our husband ought to nourish and cherish them. That verse isn't written to wives. Do you know what it says? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. You worry about what you're responsible for. And anything he gives you, why don't you, tell, why don't you thank him for his grace and his kindness? Say, I've never thought of it that way. Try it sometime. He'll need help recovering, getting over it, getting used to it, but try it. It's a whole different philosophy of attitude. Instead of the partnership idea of the 20th century, it's the woman admitting and acknowledging her place underneath the man and that favor she receives is by grace and his kindness and his love. Not your right. You do not have a right to that treatment. He has a responsibility to it. It's just like when I worked at Michigan National Bank. What did I tell them? I have one right, that's to quit. I have responsibilities, whatever you tell me to do, whether it's work without electricity or air conditioning. I thank them for any grace they showed me. I'm not saying I was a perfect employee, but I sure did try to grant them that they were boss and I was nothing but their slave. And it works. They never met a character like me. That's not meaning I was great. It just means that in our society, people don't think that way anymore. That the employer is God and you are his servant. And that anything you receive from his hand is favor and mercy. She shows her submission by falling down and admitting that to him. She then shows further humility in verse 13. After Boaz shows his religious character in verses 11 and 12 and the fact that Ruth has a very religious and righteous reputation, she says in verse 13, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast com comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid. Notice she calls it grace that Boaz spoke in a friendly way to her, not a right. It's a whole different philosophy. And it's a philosophy, if you practice with those in authority, you'd be amazed at what you can get out of them. Women, with your husbands, children, with your parents. How many times do children thank their parents for the privileges that they are allowed instead of always reminding the parents of the rights they have? But I have a right to do that. But you've got to give me that. You can't take that away from me. Is it, aren't those words more common from children than 
Thank you for feeding me three meals a day. Thank you for working so hard that we have nice automobiles. Thank you for working so hard that we have a self-propelled lawnmower. How many, aren't we a little warped? What should a godly child be doing? Thanking the parents for the blessings that they have because of the hard work and the faithfulness and the love those parents have shown. Again, very different from our society. It's Isaiah 3 versus Ruth. What shall we be? She shows her perseverance by working all day. And verse 15 tells us that she rose up and gleaned among the sheaves. And verse 17 says that she gleaned in the field until even. She started in the morning and she worked all the way until evening. And she persevered by finishing the crop. And I I think that is a great example of perseverance because Solomon describes the man who will take something in hunting, but he never eats of it because once he gets home, he looks at cleaning the thing and skinning it and taking it to the butcher and getting it cut up is just too much work, and he either throws it away or gives it to a neighbor. But see, Ruth gleans, then she beats it out, so she takes home a finished product. Solomon says, that's perseverance. That's a diligent man. She shows her thoughtfulness by coming home and giving to her mother, Naomi, mother-in-law, the doggy bag of parched corn. Remember that? As she sat at the table with Boaz in verse 14, Boaz reached her parched corn, she did eat, and was sufficed, and then she left. She didn't, you know, delay at the table. As soon as she was done eating, back to work. And when she got home, it says in the last part of verse 18, she brought forth and gave to her, that is to Naomi, that she had reserved after she was sufficed. Some of that parched corn. Thoughtfulness. Little things. Thoughtfulness. She didn't have to do that. Naomi would never know she had parched corn. Ruth could have eaten until she was sufficed, and then eaten beyond, as we often do. To our shame. But she saved some and brought it home and gave the parched corn to Naomi thoughtfulness in little things. And then her honesty is throughout the second chapter, always telling Naomi everything that happened, what Boaz said to her, the field she was at, what she was planning on doing, etc., etc., showing her the whole bushel of barley that she brought home. So we see her honesty, thoughtfulness, perseverance, humility, submission, wisdom, diligence, patience, initiative, and piety in one chapter, a godly, virtuous woman. Now, that was a lengthy review, I, under, I know. But let's go now to chapter 3 and take up where we end with the last verse of chapter 2. The last instruction of chapter 2 was Naomi saying, Ruth, I think I detect something good. I think you better stay by the handmaidens of Boaz. Because, see, Boaz had said to her, don't you go anywhere else. You can come and glean after my men. And then he had told his men, you just go ahead and drop some things on purpose. You know, he, he was dropping sheaves on purpose. He, Boaz says that in verse 16. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. In fact, in verse 15, he said, let her glean among the sheaves. I, I just love that. Watching Ruth through the afternoon get closer and closer. You know, what's a gleaner going to do? You're going to get closer and closer until you're told, now wait a minute, you're gleaning, we're reaping. 
She was getting closer and closer, and no one ever said a thing, and she got a whole bushel full in one day, and she came home, and her mother was shocked. And then Ruth said, and he also told me I could stay there all harvest season. And Naomi says, it is good. It is good. Stay there. You stay with Boaz's maidens. Verse 13, we see the obedience of Ruth. She doesn't say, yes, but Boaz is an old man, and you should have seen the fines down the street further. He had a motorcycle. She doesn't say that at all. She's a young woman. You're going to get that in chapter 3. She's still a young woman. Boaz is an old man. What does she do? She obeys. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Didn't go out and get her own apartment. She stayed and took care of her mother-in-law. Then in chapter 3, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? Now you could pick that up in in chapter 2, that it was coming. Naomi has had her mind working since chapter 1. I mean, in chapter 1, she told Ruth, I'm too old to have a husband, but you're not. And I'm not going to have any more sons for you, but I want you to find rest. My desire for you girls is to find rest in the home of a husband. And so here she says to Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? I mean, what other obligation did Naomi have? Just to let her live with her? What kind of pleasure is that? What kind of rest is that for a widow? To have to go out and glean fields all day. That's no rest. Rest for a person in this world without special dispensation from God is to be married. Naomi understood that. It's too bad that our society doesn't understand that as well. Go to a Christian bookstore and see how many books you can buy on the single life. If you can't find ten, you're at a poor bookstore. On enjoying the single life, happiness in the single life, God doesn't know about that happiness, except on an exception basis for those that he gives a special gift to. And listen, Adam, a man who was made perfect, didn't have the gift. Because God said it is good for the man, it is not good for the man to be alone in Genesis chapter 2. But you'll hear so much today about singles. A godly woman, Naomi, is going to find a husband for Ruth. Rest for men and women in mar- is in marriage, especially for widows. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Keeping your finger at Ruth, look at the fact that the Apostle Paul understood that, and he taught it. See, the Word of God is given to make the man of God perfect. And as far as I know, I've got a perfect attitude on marriage. Do you know why? Because it's based on the Word of God. What should widows do? Should they sit around for five years taking flowers to the cemetery? Should they go get a career of their own? Yet, go get a career, but not exactly of their own. Paul will tell us what kind of a career they ought to have. 1 Timothy 5.14 I will, therefore, this is Paul's will in the matter, that the younger women, and the women he's talking about are widows, marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Two things happen when a woman is single. One, she's going to be led into fornication, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then the devil can speak reproachfully, or the enemies of the gospel can speak reproachfully because of fornication. 
The second thing that can happen is she can become a busybody in other men's matters, as verse 13 describes, that single women have a tendency to become tattlers and busybodies, wandering about from house to house being idle. So what's Paul's will in the matter? Get married, have some children, and baby, you won't be idle. Guide the house and give none occasion. You won't have occasion. You know, work will keep you out of trouble. Haven't you ever heard that? You give a woman enough work, she's going to stay out of those two sources of trouble. If she's at home throwing all her attention on her children and guiding her house and loving her husband, she's not going to have time to watch as the world turns and think about the neighbor across the street. And neither is she going to have time to go down the street and sit and sip with her lady friends and gossip all day. Now, is that practical wisdom or is it not? Does it take a theologian to figure that out? That's wisdom. Paul says, my will in the matter is get married. Naomi, was she very scriptural? Would she have made a good minister? No, she was a woman. But she certainly understood what to do with widows. And she says in Ruth chapter 3, just what Paul would have taught, my daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? 1 Corinthians 11 and 11 says, Neither is the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man, in the Lord. The Lord expects men and women to find mates in the Lord and get married. Because that is where rest is at. Now, if you've been in the single life for a couple of years and you think you have rest being single, you don't know what rest is like in the married state. The married state provides rest from desire that is unquenched. It provides rest from the uncertainty of dating. You know dating, wondering, does she love, she loves me? She loves me not. She loves me? She loves me not. She didn't call me today. Or he didn't call me today. He didn't call me all week. Oh, I'm going to die. You know all that, remember how our emotions used to get ripped up on one side and down the other if they didn't give that call at the appointed minute? Remember? Is that rest? I love my wife dearly, but if my wife dies, I won't say she won't yet be cold, but it won't take too long before I have a wife because there is no rest without a wife. And I know that about myself, and I'll be seeking one, especially, well, if I can find one that will take five children to boot. It'll be a special woman that'll marry me with five children. But anyway, that's scriptural. It's not because I don't appreciate my wife. You know, sometimes in our idealistic way of thinking, and I've, I've known some women, and I've said some things myself before the poor woman married me, that, you know, if one of us were to die, aren't you just going to put my picture on the chest of drawers and over the bed and at the kitchen table, and you'd never marry anyone else, would you? That's selfish. That's being selfish. That's subjecting another person to a state of unrest for the rest of their life. The apostles said, I will that they find some rest in the Lord. Now, those of you men who are married to women who aren't in the Lord, married marriage isn't a state of rest. It is in some ways and it isn't in others. And I, 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 I don't even like preaching, in a sense, on the rest of marriage, given the fact that we have some men who aren't exactly in a state of rest. Marriage provides that rest from wandering affections, desire, and the uncertainty of the dating world. 
Being single does not bode well for a person. Do you believe that? Now, God said it is not good. Do you know what that means? That it doesn't bode well. And that's what Naomi says in verse 1 when she says, Shouldn't I seek rest for thee that it may be well with thee? Being single is not having a good life. Marriage is a very practical relationship that we ought to stay in, that we ought to look forward to, that we ought to encourage among our young people, that we ought to glorify if it's in the Lord and if we're loving each other as we ought. It is a state of rest. One of the greatest kindnesses you can show to another is to help them find a mate, like Naomi did for Ruth. Now, Naomi was content to be a widow, but she wasn't going to sit around and watch Ruth be a widow. She was going to do the matchmaking as quickly as she could. And friends, barley harvest doesn't last two years. Barley harvest only lasts a couple weeks. And then wheat, oh, you say, but then there was wheat harvest. How long do you think it takes to get wheat in? Not long. They don't want it to rain on it and ruin it. They don't want mildew on it. It doesn't take long, and Naomi's already going to work. Because it's obvious, as you're going to see in a minute, I mean, when single, single, in the Lord, try it anyway. That's what Naomi did. With Ruth's need, you know, Naomi could look at Ruth. Ruth needs a husband. She could look at Boaz. This guy's got a nice bank account. What else do you need? For starters, now there were a whole lot of other little factors like, I think Boaz just might like her. He sure has been kind to me before, and he's being kind to Ruth now. But she just puts together some of this practical information and suggests that they get together. Now look at the wisdom of Naomi in verse 2. And now is not Boaz of our kindred? She's starting to lay some hints out for Ruth, some encouragement to go do what she's about to suggest. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now, for a poor woman who stayed at home all the time, she sure did know where Boaz was going to be, didn't she? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Naomi knew where the man was to be found. She knew his relationship to the family and what he could do. She recognized the fact that, Ruth, you've been around him quite a while now with his handmaidens, a couple of weeks. Isn't it time you did something? And this is what Naomi is now going to bring up. We have a warped philosophy in the 20th century, and again, I speak as the man of God from the Word of God. Young people should not be given free reign in picking whoever they want to marry. Yet most of us were given that. I mean, you just go, you just start dating when you're 16, pick whoever you want to, and end up marrying whoever you want to. For 5,900 years, or 6,000 years, it hasn't been done that way. Mom and dad played a major role in determining who you married. And now someone might say, yeah, but that's just the Old Testament when things were rather primitive. You know, they lived in caves back then. Let me remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul taught it as a New Testament precept that if a man didn't want to let his virgin daughter marry, he didn't have to. And if he wanted to, he could. He hadn't sinned. But if he didn't let her marry, he had done the better thing. With these limitations, if when she passes the flower of her age, she doesn't need to be married. 
Who was in control of a marriage in 1 Corinthians 7? The father. No 18-year-old no guy, apart from a miracle, knows what to look for in a woman. The, fir the first woman that comes along and gives him some affection and has some beauty and shows him some favor, it's love is blind. He's gone. He's gone. That's why he needs others who can look at that woman, talk to her, and tell him what they think of her, especially a wise father who wants his son married to a good woman. That son hasn't been married before. What does he know about the married life? What experience is he drawing from? Do you know what he's drawing from? Puppy love. You don't know what love is until you've been married. Those feelings and that chemistry that attracts, that attracts you to another person isn't love in the sense that you're going to have to be practicing for the rest of your life. Love is when you wake up and that woman's in an ornery mood and she looks as ugly as sin. I mean, let's be realistic. And you know, the kids are screaming, the phone's ringing. And it's, it's a mess. You come home and she, her hair's in curlers and the kids have a stinky diaper. And she has to go to the hospital for some female inspection. And on and on, and your mind's about to blow. Then when you can love her and be kind to her. That is love, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Didn't we all learn that after we got married? I mean, before we were married. Think about all the promise you, you, promises you gave that poor woman. I mean, if my wife ever called to remembrance the vows I uttered before we were married, she'd have me in that kitchen sink every meal. We're blind. We don't know what the married life's going to be like. Didn't we all make some pretty strong... Did, didn't you do that? Or am I speaking out of school here about myself? Love is blind. We can't see any imperfections. And all we can, we can think... Well, all we think is idealistically. When a father, a pastor, you older men in the congregation can look at our younger men and say, wait a minute, brother. This is what it's going to be like. And they're going to talk the same way I do if they're honest. If they tell you that she always looks wonderful and she's the most beautiful thing in the world and she's going to make it easy for you to love her, they're lying. There's not a human being on earth that's easy to love. I know that about myself. We live in a society, though, that's, that's lost that. You go out and marry whoever feels good and when the feelings disappear, guess what you do? divorce because marriage is based on feelings because that is all that a young man and a young woman can have for each other unless they're thoroughly grounded in the word of God and even then they still need a multitude of counselors right. marriage based on feeling without the experience is going to hit the rocks and unless they are two sober and strong young people their marriage will break and does it do the statistics of the United States Prove that out. And a man who's been married has experience to draw on. David, Otis, Clay, Michael, and others in here who aren't married. We've been married. We know what's it, what it's like. We can see through the favor and the beauty of a woman. Proverbs 31.30 is my favorite verse for young men. Favor, and favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. You can come to me and tell me, but you would not believe what this girl does for me. 
She, does, she bakes me cookies. She waits up for me. She's always ready when I come home from work. She calls me and asks me what a good day I had, and she comes to church with me. Do you know what all that means to me? It looks something like this. A big, fat nothing. Favor is deceitful. They can train monkeys to do those things. Listen, Indian squaws did that better. They'd walk ten feet behind you. But they also worship buffalo skulls. Favor is deceitful. When you, get, when you men, young men, the four that I mentioned, bring a girl to this assembly, that doesn't mean anything to me. I want to see her loving this book and loving the Lord we worship. That makes a big difference. Anyone can warm a chair to get you. Favor is deceitful. They'll deceive you by their favor, just like Delilah, you know, stroking Samson's long hair and telling him what a handsome brood he was and how much she, she loved him. You know what happened to Samson? He was deceived by that woman. And beauty is vain. If you marry on beauty, what are you going to do when she's 55? And I don't mean any disrespect for 55-year-old women. I'll use 75. You're not exactly going to be the young man of your strength either. Beauty will be gone. It's vain. It's empty. It disappears. What will then hold you together? The foundation of the Word of God. But how do you get that as a young man? By listening to the advice of your father in particular and other men. And it's hard because your, your heart strings are going to be ripping you up and down. Your emotions will be tearing you apart. This thing is perfect. How can they criticize her? That's how you'll be feeling. And eight chances out of ten, you'll tell us all to jump off the pier. Go jump in the lake will be your attitude unless at this early stage before you meet her, you will agree and purpose in your heart before God, I am not going to marry any girl that my pastor and my father and the other men of the church don't approve of. Wouldn't that be great? No, I didn't say we're going to go out and pick her. We may have something to do with picking some dates, but I just said the one when you latch on one that you like, make sure that she's approved. If she's not approved, and your pastor and your father and other men keep saying, that woman looks dangerous, I'd drop her if I were you, what should you do? If you've made a commitment now to drop her based on our advice, you're going to be saved a lot of grief. To be married to the wrong person is hell on earth. To be married to a brawling and contentious woman, Solomon said, give me the wilderness. Give me the wilderness rather than that home. I want the best for our young people and, and young girls also. I don't want you marrying Tommy Motorcycle or the Fonz because he's cool and can wear leather jackets and because he's a quarterback on the high school football team. All that's irrelevant. I want a man that's going to work hard for you, that loves the God of this Bible, so that when it comes down to you're the one with the hair and curlers and it's your baby with the dirty diaper, he's going to be practicing Ephesians chapter 5, and you're going to have a husband that loves you. But you don't think that way right now completely, unless you have this saturated in your mind, this book. 
there's so much to say on that subject. I, it's easy. God's laid it out for us. Fathers and mothers pick brides and approve them if you're wise. Now, if you are enlightened and advanced, like the 20th century, you'll do it yourself, and you'll either end up in hell or divorce court. Most probably. You show me a young, a young man that fears the Lord and loves his word, a young woman who fears the Lord and loves his word, who understand marriage and have a pastor that will look out for them, and I'll show you a couple that will succeed. Verse 3. Wash thyself, therefore, Naomi tells Ruth, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. Now, this is ba- that doesn't mean roll on the floor there at home. It means get down to the threshing floor. Now, this is good dating advice. Take a bath. Wash yourself. I mean, it's body odor. It does not help attract a, even a godly man. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee. Now, what words does it leave out of verse 3? Does it say, paint thee? You know, like Jezebel did. You know the excess that uh, Tammy Baker goes to in painting herself. It doesn't say, paint thee. It says, wash thee. A clean, anointed woman that isn't, you don't anoint with makeup. You anoint with oil for a shining face and soft hair because of the dust of the Middle East. Clean, anointed, fresh, and with a decent apparel on. You're not trying to attract a man by physical looks. Yes, you can paint yourself up to look like a bombshell. But what kind of a man are you going to get looking like a bombshell? You're not going to get a God. Guess what you've just said to a godly man? I'm not good enough for you. You stack the makeup on and you're saying to any good man, I'm not good enough for you. I like looking like a whore. I want some scum also. Clean, well-dressed. That's what Ruth did. That's what a good guy is looking for. Get thee down to the threshing floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Let him, you know, you've heard the expression, the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. You've all heard that. Well, Naomi, in a sense, was practicing that. Let him get his belly filled first, and then you can go talk to him, Ruth. I want to make a statement here, though, about marriage. Naomi is not nearly so fatalistic as most Christians are when it comes to marriage. Have you ever heard this expression, marriages are made in heaven? What does that mean? A marriage made in heaven. Have you ever heard someone say to a young person, the Lord has the right person for you, you just need to trust Him and wait. If you trust Him and wait long enough, you're going to die single. You say, that sounds irreverent to talk that way about trusting the Lord. Do you leave your doors open at night and fall down beside your bed and ask the Lord for safety, or do you lock them?
Remember that God uses means. Why aren't any of you that fatalistic with jobs? Why don't we sit around and say, the Lord has a perfect job for me. I'm going to wait for him to bring it to me. You know, it's like some of these single women are waiting to see the shadow, first of all, come across the living room window. And then this white horse come into view with this champion sitting upon it. And he says, get on behind me. You know, and they ride off into the sunset like God is going to make that happen. I've met them, and I have heard the advice from Christian counselors, trust the Lord, he'll provide in his time. Do you know what I say? Get out and find him and trust the Lord. Devise some way in your heart to find a man and let the Lord direct your steps. Listen, I've got lots of ideas, too. We don't send off like Abraham did and just, Lord, whoever waters my camels is going to be Isaac's wife. We don't do that. But you can certainly put an ad in the newspaper. You say, that sounds, that sounds so humanistic. That's not trusting the Lord. Put an ad in the newspaper. Christian woman seeks Christian man. He must fear the Lord, love the truth, be ambitious and successful and whatever else you want to add. You might even add, and love sporting, in that order. Put whatever you want in the ad. You can control it. Get some responses from Christian people who, so-called Christian, you'll have your work to do when you meet them, and get someone that way. A couple weeks ago, we had some visitors here from Detroit. I wanted, it didn't happen, but I wanted him to give his testimony of how he found the wife he has. He has a virtuous wife. She's one of the finest women I know as far as this type of character. He was married to a whore. She committed adultery and left him. Charlie Doring that was here two weeks ago. I've told you about him before. He began arranging dates as fast as he could, putting them in his calendar. He'd go out with them. He'd take a Bible. He'd lay out some facts before them, and if they didn't respond the right way, gone. He met this 30-year-old woman. And I, had, I got her testimony this past weekend. I had her tell me all about it from her standpoint. She met a woman who had waited until she was 30, and I now quote, because I had never met a man that was serious religiously. And the first thing that attracted me to Charlie was his seriousness spiritually. Come again? Is this the 20th century? That's what she said. He arranged dates with everyone that he possibly could. He'd call me when he got home at night. Well, I blew her out, and he'd tell me what blew her out. The first night with Gail, a good Lutheran woman. They went over the King James Bible issue. They went over contemporary Christian music, and they went over the holidays. I mean, the holidays is a tough one for any woman. But you know what? She was a godly woman. She'd already given up on that stuff. Not completely, but she already realized that it was a bunch of foolishness. But he approached it very objectively, very quickly. Within two months of his divorce, he was dating this woman. And within six months after that, he married her. And she's a jewel. She's the best thing that could ever have happened to Charlie Doring. And I use him as an example for this congregation because I've seen it work. We're not fatalistic with our jobs. We look in the newspaper, don't we? 
Don't we go pursue every avenue that we can to find a good job? We don't just sit around waiting for the Lord to bring something our way. We devise in our heart, what can I do to help my chances of meeting someone? What did Ruth do to help her chances of meeting Moaz? Boaz, carried in the house. Carried in the house. I'm sick of hearing about people leaving others in a single status without encouraging them to do something for themselves. You know, God gives partners, doesn't he? We read in the Bible that whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor from the Lord. But how do you find a wife? How do you find anything? You search. Ask, seek, and knock. Don't stop with asking. Make sure you seek and knock. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? You don't just ask for something. You ask. Then you're out seeking, and you're knocking on doors of opportunity wherever they might be. There's Christian singles lists if you want to start with someone who's at least nominally Christian. There are other singles lists, as Terry Kruger knows so well, and as we all know well. Approach it objectively. I think, what a fascinating search it could be. We have computers. You may use mine. Form letters. Mail out 500 and weed them out with a good first letter. There are things young people can do rather than sit around in sensitivity sessions with other singles. What's another single going to do for you except cry in your towel also? You need to listen to some married people tell you how good it is and get out and get married. Naomi did that for Ruth. Now she tells in verse 4, she says, Ruth, wash yourself, anoint yourself, get a nice dress on. Go down in verse 4, and when Boaz lays down after he's eaten drunk, thou shalt mark the place where he lies. I mean, they're going to hit the lights, but make sure you know exactly where he's at so you can tiptoe over there, not hitting anyone else. Pick the covers up from off his feet and lay down at his feet. Naomi told her to do that. Verse 5. Well, she, and then Naomi said, He will tell thee what thou shalt do. <sighs> Nothing else. Just he'll tell you what you should do. Verse 5. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. Now can you imagine being Ruth, a young Moabitess, with Boaz, a rich and mighty man of Bethlehem, and going in there and doing that to him? A Moabitess. What would have happened to Moabites? Right. Now she's being quite forward. Was there grounds for Naomi giving her such forward advice? You would not be... I think I mentioned it last Sunday. I wish I could bring commentaries and let you... I can bring them if you want to read them and read what some good old Puritan commentators will say on this. That Naomi was guilty of a great offense against the modesty of women. Now, I, I can't fathom God blessing so directly such a gross act of immodesty, if that's what it was. Nor can I understand why Boaz is going to respond so positively if it wasn't a very virtuous thing she did, given all the circumstances. What are the circumstances? Did Naomi know that Boaz was a near kinsman? Yes. Boaz was a near kinsman. We've already been told that. So Naomi knew that full well. 
Did Naomi know about the leverage that a widow had in dealing with a near kinsman? Yes. Look at the leverage. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Say, I didn't know that widows had any rights in the Bible. Look at this right. When was the last time you spit in a man's face? Women. That was the right they had. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Listen, it's in the Bible. Can I say it? Verse 5. If brethren dwell together and one of them die, this is Deuteronomy 25.5, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger, shall not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead that his name be not put out of Israel. God didn't want men's names dying. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, you know, she's got a hair lip and he doesn't want to marry her. Then let his brother's wife, this is the woman, the widow, go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her. No, I'm not going to marry that woman. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer him and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Interesting customs, but God-ordained customs. Nonetheless, God took it very seriously about a man having sons. Remember the sons of Judah? God took care of Onan right quick, didn't he? Killed him dead for not raising up seed to the son of Ur, to the wife of Ur. God takes this very seriously, and here's where a widow has a right. She has a right to go to the elders of the city, demand the presence of that man, demand his testimony, whether it was true or not that he wouldn't marry her, and then spit in his face and take his shoe off and humiliate him, before the rest of the congregation and forever his name would be the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. And you know, anybody that said that also realized that man had a woman spit in his face. That's the way God dealt. Now, give, did Naomi know that? Did Naomi know that widows had some bargaining power with kinsmen? Indeed, she did. Keep that in mind as we go against the Puritan commentators who would have us believe that Naomi was some evil woman and that Ruth was just a blind daughter-in-law who obeyed without a great deal of prudence. Couldn't stand reading that stuff. Did Naomi know the character and sobriety of Boaz to be above reproach? What was Boaz's reputation? I mean, he hits the field and he says, The Lord bless thee to his reapers. He He swears to the Lord to bless Ruth for taking care of Naomi and for leaving the gods of the Moabites to come and live in Israel. That's a godly man. He's providing for widows by asking his men to leave sheaves. Now, Naomi knew that it was something gracious like that. She knew that it wasn't just Ruth's diligence, but it was the favor of Boaz. And remember, in chapter 2, Naomi said this about Boaz, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. 
He has not left off it. What does that mean? He had shown kindness before. He already had a reputation for kindness. He was a godly, righteous man that feared the Lord. And Naomi knew that. That's reason three. Reason four. Naomi knew that Boaz was an older man, not as susceptible to temptation as a young buck, you know, around 20 years of age. He's an older man. We don't know how old. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he's old enough that he was considered an old man while younger bachelors were considered young men. And that statement's going to be made later in this chapter. Naomi knew that. Naomi knew that Boaz had shown considerable kindness to Ruth in gleaning. She already had an idea. He may already be caught. You know, Ruth, you may have already caught him because of the kindness he had shown in telling her to come back to his field each day. Naomi knew that Boaz had now been exposed to Ruth's presence for some time. He had be- she had been there every day. She had been there at the table when they ate. She had been around Boaz. It wasn't as if he didn't know her. Naomi also knew that Boaz knew about Ruth's virtuous character. For Ruth to lay at your feet is not a temptation. It's not an offer of something evil. Because that woman had a character that was known citywide as being a very virtuous woman. Now, ladies, when you are very virtuous and very sober, you can get away with things that other women can't. Why? Because no one would suspect anything evil of you because of your reputation. Isn't that delightful? No one's going to suspect anything evil. Boaz isn't going to think she's a whore coming there because of her reputation, because consistently she had sacrificed everything for the cause of Christ. You show me a young woman who's willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ, and I mean who's done it, I'll show you a woman that I can see alone with a guy on a date if I can see anyone alone. Naomi knew well the virtuousness of Ruth herself. Not only did she know that Boaz knew about it, but Naomi knew that Ruth was a virtuous girl and wouldn't do anything that would spoil that reputation. Naomi would not have run the risk of losing Boaz if the action would have been perceived as evil. That would have been just doing something to have lost the chance at Boaz. Ruth again shows her obedient submission to authority by doing exactly what her mother-in-law said. Look at verse 6. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And this evening we'll take up and finish this book. Due to the fact that we had several here this morning who weren't here either last Sunday or last Sunday evening, I wanted to make the review. But what we have so far And what I want to emphasize is a point that I have tried to make in the past. This is the number one point from this morning's sermon. We cannot be fatalistic in our approach to life. Whether it is a job, whether it is a career change, whether it is a husband or a wife, whether it's safety, let us not be fatalists. And there are fatalists who have gone off the deep end by what they call trusting the Lord, what God calls tempting the Lord. To pray for someone, for God to deliver you a husband or to, to give you a wife, and not to pursue that yourself is to tempt the Lord. For to take the promise of Proverbs 18, 22, where it says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. 
and say, Lord, I thank you for that promise I'm waiting for now. That's to tempt the Lord just like Satan tempted Jesus Christ with Scripture. You need to ask, but you also need to seek and knock. Look at Ruth. She devised in her heart, I need to glean. The Lord directed the steps to the most profitable field. You devise in your heart, God tells me that rest and a good life is to be married, if you're a widow or if you're single. I believe that. I don't think God has given me a gift. I'm going to pursue a godly woman that I can have that state of rest and the Lord willing raise a godly seed to his name. You devise that in your heart. Let me help you devise some means to get it accomplished and we'll trust the Lord to direct your steps. That is how the Lord blesses. He expects us to use secondary means. If he wants to intervene supernaturally and incarnate someone in front of you, fine. But I'm not going to wait for that. I'm going to trust the Lord the way he's described. We devise, he directs. We plan such and such a city, a year, to do this or that. But we say, if the Lord will. He wills, he blesses, but it's our devising. Friends, that is the answer to reconcile human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. We devise in our hearts, and we must devise, or will not receive the blessing. He directs and blesses the efforts. May God save us from fatalism, even in the subject of marriage. And may our young men and young women be seekers and knockers for marriage and not just askers.